0: Welcome back to the Core EM Podcast. The core content for anyone, anywhere, and just in time. This is the official podcast of the NYU Bellevue EM residency program. I'm Anand in Swami Nathan and I've got Megan Spires back on for another segment. Megan, welcome back to Core EM.
1: Thanks, Swami. Great to be back with you. All
0: right, Megan, so I want to tackle a disease that we probably miss on a frequent basis. In fact, I would say I probably miss this disease more than I make the diagnosis, but it's one that affects a particularly vulnerable population, and it's got a relatively quick fix. Let's talk about Wernicke's encephalopathy.
1: I really love this topic. For one, it has really interesting pathophysiology, and for toxicologists like me, that's something that we really, uh, really get into. But it's also really a great topic for emergency medicine. Like you mentioned, it's it's really easy to treat, But unfortunately, it's also really easy to miss. And when we miss this diagnosis, our patients suffer because the morbidity from Wernicke's is pretty pretty significant.
0: All right. So Megan, let's start at the beginning. What is Wernicke's encephalopathy?
1: So Wernicke's is an encephalopathy that occurs secondary to thiamine deficiency, which is vitamin B1. Thiamine is needed for a lot of different processes in the body. But the main one here that we're going to focus on is that thiamine is a cofactor for the enzyme pyruvate dehydrogenase. And the overall big picture of this is that this enzyme with thiamine is needed to take glucose from anaerobic glycolysis into the Krebs cycle where we make the majority of our ATP. So what happens is this enzyme converts pyruvate, which is the end product of glucose metabolism and glycolysis, to acetyl CoA. And that's what we need to get into the Krebs cycle. So no thiamine, no Krebs cycle. And no ATP, and there's certain organs like the brain and the heart that are particularly susceptible to low ATP levels.
0: So that's probably more of the pathophysiology than most of our listeners are going to be keyed in for, but it's good to know a little bit of the background and how this is functioning. And also that fact that the heart and the brain are very ATP dependent or very ATP sensitive, I think is really important because it helps us to figure out what pathology these patients are going to have. Now how are they going to present when I see them in the emergency department?
1: Well, Wernicke's classically presents with a triad of ophthalmoplegia, so some abnormal movements of the eyes, ataxia, and altered mental status or some kind of confusion or memory problem. So Wernicke's can also progress to something called Korsakoff syndrome, which is an irreversible anterior grade amnesia. But the thing is, patients often don't present with a full triad like most things in medicine. So you might just have a patient that presents with some confusion and ataxia, but they don't have the ophthalmoplegia. Another thing that you might find with these patients is decreased or absent reflexes. And then this isn't going to be something that they go out and tell you about, but um, you might be able to suss out that these patients are also going to be people who have a risk factor for thionine deficiency.
0: Yeah, so that really brings us to the groups that we have to be keyed in on. So which groups are we going to be particularly worried that Wernicke's could be at play?
1: Well, so in the U.S., it's estimated that up to about 2% of the population has Wernicke's, um, but the majority of these are going to remain undiagnosed. And this occurs, you get thiamine deficient for three reasons, really. Either you're not taking enough in, you're not absorbing it, or you're having some form of enhanced elimination, as far as the populations at risk, most of us know about chronic alcoholics, and these guys really have multiple risk factors for thiamine deficiency. They're not eating enough nutrition, and they also aren't absorbing the thiamine that they, they take in. But other patients are also at risk, like those who've had bariatric surgery, those with AIDS or malignancy, uh, also hyperemesis gravidarum, and there's a great case report in the New England Journal in July of this year of, of a case of Wernicke's from hyperemesis. But there's also other groups uh, who are at risk, those with poor nutrition, like people with eating disorders or those on fad diets, but also the institutionalized elderly and prisoners can be at risk as well. One other interesting group is patients with CHF on furosemide because they have enhanced renal elimination. So it's really interesting. It's a lot of different groups. It's not just the
0: alcoholic, but you can see how the alcoholic would be particularly difficult to pick up. Not only do these patients often get a little bit swept under the rug, we kind of ignore them when they're in the apartment, let them sleep it off, let them go home. But on top of that, some of the major diagnostic factors for Wernicke's are confusion or altered mental status and an ataxic gait. Both things that we see in, well, just about every alcoholic patient who presents with alcohol intoxication. So it can be obviously very difficult to tease these out. Now, they have a frank ophthalmoplegia or if they have a wide-based gait when they're sober enough to leave, that might be enough for us to pick this up. But most of the patients are going to be a little bit more subtle. So aside from just understanding which groups are at risk, do you have any other tips that we can use to help us not miss these patients?
1: So I would say the biggest thing is really just to pay attention to these chronic alcoholics that have multiple presentations, particularly if that presentation involves confusion. Spend an extra minute or two talking to them to really fully assess the mental status and do a good neuro exam. But a big thing would be don't blow off ataxia as being due to alcohol intoxication if the patient's sober enough to be discharged. Also, there's a clinical tool that you can use for detecting Wernicke's. Uh, It's pretty intuitive. It consists of four components. The first is dietary deficiencies and also oculomotor abnormalities, cerebellar dysfunction, and altered mental status or mild memory impairment. So if you have two or more of those components, that should tip you off that you need to at least think about Wernicke's in these patients.
0: I like that, too, because it doesn't focus on the triad, the classic triad that we're all taught in medical school. What it really says is you don't have to have all those components. Any two of these are going to be enough. And I think the one that you see, it's really the one that gets you into the diagnostic algorithm is that dietary deficiency. Once you have that, then you're going to be looking for those other three things. You're often going to pick up one, and that's enough to make the diagnosis. We can see now how frequent this is. You said 2%. I'm going to guess that, again, I miss most of those, but having these tools, having the idea of these four components is going to help us to recognize this. Now, of course, it doesn't matter if we recognize a disease if you can't treat it. But like you mentioned earlier, this is a disease that has a good treatment, one that's effective and actually pretty cheap. We basically need to give them thiamine. So you and I worked together at Bellevue for four years. We gave 100 milligrams of thiamine, either IM or IV, I mean, 100 times, 1,000 times. God knows how many times we've done that in our chronic alcoholics. Is this the same treatment that we're going to use for Wernicke's?
1: So the 100 milligram thiamine IV is totally an accepted treatment for the prevention of Wernicke's, and it protects patients for at least a week. And just as a reminder, we give alcoholics thiamine IV because in the presence of ethanol, thiamine absorption is drastically reduced. And they've done some studies that show in healthy human volunteers, it's reduced up to 50%. We tend to avoid the IM administration because those at risk for thiamine deficiency might also have diminished muscle mass, uh, making the absorption a little less predictable. But as far as the treatment for Wernicke's goes, we typically recommend 500 milligrams thiamine IV, and that's gonna be given three times a day, TID for two to three days, and then we'd bump the dose down to 250 IV for another three to five days. And there are guidelines that recommend this, and that's what we follow. But I've done a little digging as to where we get this dose. And it's definitely not hard science, but you know, mechanistically it makes sense. Um, and there's, as you mentioned, very little downside to thiamine, even in these large doses.
0: If you recognize Wernicke's, these patients are going to be getting 500 milligrams IV three times a day for a couple of days, and then 250 daily for another three to five days. So obviously, if you recognize this, Megan, this isn't here's a little bit of thymine, go on your way. They're going to have to be admitted to the hospital even though we do see when you give that first 500 milligrams, patients can have rapidly improving symptoms in front of you, but that's not enough. You can't just give them some oral thiamine and send them out the door. They're going to have to stay. They're going to have to get these infusions so you prevent their development of Korsakoff. Now, this is a little bit of an aside, but we were always taught that if you have a patient who's hypoglycemic, you got to give the thiamine before you give the glucose. Is that really true? Is that absolutely a hard and fast must be done or is this a little bit of dogma here?
1: Um, I'm going to go ahead and call this this a myth or dogma. Yeah you know, a glucose load will increase your thiamine requirements. And so there's been this concern that developed that in patients who were already thiamine deficient, that single dextrose bolus might somehow push them over the edge into Wernicke's. And there's really no evidence that this occurs um, in patients who aren't already overtly showing signs of thiamine deficiency. So Certainly, if someone's hypoglycemic, I would absolutely give them the glucose. That's what they need right away. But you know, if I'm treating these patients, I'm going to give them thiamine with the glucose, but I'm not going to worry too much about the order.
0: We want to pair these cognitively in our mind. So if I give glucose, I should give thiamine, but don't worry about giving the thiamine first. Just give the glucose, reverse the hypoglycemia, which is the one that is a life threat, and then the thiamine can be given afterwards. Megan, is there anything else that we need to do aside from the administration of thiamine in these patients who come in with Wernicke's?
1: Administering that 500 of thiamine is really what you need to do. Um, Certainly, you know, a regular workup, everything else that you do for these patients as indicated, but they do need to be admitted to the hospital, as you mentioned. And especially if you see improvement after that 500 of thiamine, that kind of seals the diagnosis for me at least. Um, And so those patients require admission to the hospital. One other thing I did want to mention about thymine is that, remember, this can also manifest, thymine deficiency can also manifest with cardiac effects, and that's something called wet beriberi. Wet beriberi presents as a high-output heart failure, and the patients come in complaining of fatigue, shortness of breath, peripheral edema. Uh, One thing that's interesting is that patients don't usually have both the neurologic and cardiac findings, so you'll either have a patient with Wernicke's or the wet beriberi.
0: Very interesting. I can't say that I've seen a case of wet berry berry anytime recently, but it's good to know. And again, in our alcoholics who come in with signs of heart failure, something to think about, because again, this is a relatively reversible cause, something that we can treat. Now, I think with all those tools, Megan, especially the idea of which of these factors you need to have to make the diagnosis. A lot of our listeners now have the tools to go out and diagnose Wernicke's. Everyone's going to be looking for it. I think we're going to find more cases and find more cases, again, that we can do something about, that we can treat. How about some take-home points for the listeners?
1: So my take-home points would be just to think of this in in those vulnerable patient populations like your chronic alcoholics. If you, if you don't think of the diagnosis, of course, you can't make it. So just think of this with those patients and then look for aphthalmoplegia, ataxia, and confusion particularly in patients that are high risk for this deficiency. And don't think that it can't be Wernicke's if the triad is not complete. And then remember, the treatment is not just the 100, it's 500 milligrams IV.
0: Thanks, Megan. It's always great to have you back on the program. For the listeners, if you want to check out more from Megan, you can see her on Twitter at MBSpires, that's S-P-Y-R-E-S. And she also tweets at USC Med Talks. That's all for the Core EM podcast this week. Come on or check out the site at coreem.net. We've got a ton of great core content emergency medicine. We'll have a core post up on Wednesday and a journal update up on Thursday. Don't forget to check out our Facebook page, follow us on Google+, and on Twitter where our handle is at core underscore em. Thanks, and see you all next week.